Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. By 2011, electronic music was making one of its occasional forays into the American mainstream. While on a bus en route to a Red Bull Music Academy junket in Palm Springs that year, the music journalist Michelangelo Matos realized he was well-placed to document the country's fraught relationship with rave culture. Matos had written profiles, think pieces, and music criticism for publications like Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, and The Guardian, as well as Resident Advisor. But over the next few years, he threw himself headlong into what would become his first book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, which sees released this week. Over more than 400 pages, Matos draws a zigzagging line from Frankie Knuckles and the Belleville Three to techno-obsessed early internet adopters, Tommy Sunshine's most colorful drug experiences, and parties covering nearly every corner of the country. Extensively researched and suffused with Matos's wry humor, it's a dazzling read, plugging holes in a story that's never quite been told like this. I met Matos at his publisher's office in Manhattan recently to hear how it came together. This project, pretty massive undertaking. Yeah. Can you tell me about the roots of the project? Yeah. I remembered this recently. I remember in 1997, some, I had gotten a friend of mine got me in touch or got them in touch with me. It was a publisher in England that wanted kind of a quickie history of dance music because at that point there were a lot of those going around. and. What I distinctly remember was saying, oh, well, I can't really do that because Simon Reynolds is doing that. And I thought, well, that's that. I'm never going to have to, you know, I will not need to do this at all. The guy who does this better than anybody and who knows more about it than just about anybody, or at least has more ideas about it, is doing it. So it's a long time ago. And I hadn't thought about it since because who the hell wanted a new book about dance music? It, you know, for a good 15 years. No one. It wasn't going to sell. And I, at, at least not in America, and I didn't think about it in those terms ever. I just kept covering it. And around February of 11, I got an email from Red Bull Music Academy in Germany, this guy Davida. And he was, he said, Todd Burns put us in touch with you. We're gathering a whole bunch of people in Palm Springs for a couple of days to hobnob. So I went, and I was very, very suspicious because I don't do, I had never been on a junket before. Nobody had ever paid a, for a trip for me except for an employer. And just to confirm, I mean, they they didn't present you with any agenda. It was we're just getting They didn't present anybody together. with an agenda, yeah. which was, that was what raised my suspicions. If there had been an agenda on the table, if there had been a five-point plan or something, it would have been easy to understand. But I'm not used to going and 
hobnobbing for the sake of hobnobbing. I'm not that kind of person, and I've never been on a junket prior to that. So I was very suspicious of it. And I got there, and I was still suspicious of it, and it turned out to be a cattle call. And when you go to a cattle call, and it's suspicious to you, and you act like you're suspicious of it, you're not going to get picked. So A cattle call for what? They were trying to establish a presence in the States. They knew dance music was about to blow up, and they wanted to get their feet into the door early, or at least early-ish. Because this was February of 11, so a month later is Ultra. Three months after Ultra is EDC Vegas, the first EDC Vegas. And the first EDC Vegas is the first time mainstream America finally notices that dance music is actually blowing up. And it was also the first time I did. So I go to this thing, and I'm talking to Sean Horton. And Sean Horton puts on Decibel Festival. And I had lived in Seattle and covered Decibel Festival for years, and I had not really ever had a conversation with him until I went to this thing. We're on a bus going to dinner. I had had my first taste of Southern California weed, thank heavens. It was fabulous. And I'm talking to Sean. I'm having a real conversation with this person. And that's what, you know, I'm good at speaking in front of groups of people, but I'm not good at hobnobbing with groups of people. I'm good at talking to people one-on-one or in small groups. And so this conversation I'm having is a very, it's nice. It's really, he's telling me about spinning ambient music at Zoot's Coffee House in Detroit, which is where he's from. And that's the minute. That's literally where I, I remember my head just kind of fell against the window of the bus and slid down a bit. It was an overwhelming sensation of, this is your book. Hello. Up until that minute, I couldn't have conceived of writing a book about dance music because there wasn't an audience for it. And I'd been used to having ideas for books that people would scoff at that would later happen as books for other people or, you know, ideas that seemed weird at the time that have gained traction. That was it. It was like everybody on this bus has 50 of these stories. That's a book. All I would have had to do is talk to everybody on this bus for an hour and I've got a book. And then once I realized that, I remember after we got back from dinner, I went into the lobby of the Ace Hotel where we were being put up and getting on the lobby computer, going to RA in fact, going to the DJ list, to the DJ page listings and going through them alphabetically and writing, furiously writing down in a notebook every DJ I might want to talk to. I remember that vividly. I did that for about two hours because as soon as I had the idea, it was like, I have to do this now. And it took a long time from that to writing an actual proposal because I'd written a couple of book proposals prior to that, that hadn't been successful in large part because I didn't quite know what the story I was trying to tell with them was. And this one I knew, but what took a long time is actually figuring out how to tell it because dance music is a hugely amorphous thing. You can't really say, we're going to tell the story of dance music through the persona of Richie Houghton or through the persona of Moby or whomever because there's too many variables, there's too much other stuff going on, and a lot of the more successful people in dance music tend to be, to furrow a fairly narrow path because you kind of have to do that. You have to present a 
you have to present a persona that's all that you have to present a fairly defined persona to sort of make it as, as a personality in dance music in the big time in that way. So I couldn't write a bio. It wasn't going to work. I didn't have, there wasn't anybody I wanted to write a bio of. I knew also this was a, what the New York Times referred to once as a gang history. They were talking about books like Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution or Dan Charnas's The Big Payback, or those are the two books I modeled mine on more than anything. Although the, uh, I love Please Kill Me and I love uh, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And those are the books that we're referring to in the campaign a lot as sort of the the markers. And that mm. makes sense. I have no problem with that. But in terms of the actual putting together of the book, the ones I wanted to emulate were Mark Harris's and Dan Charnas's books. Those are really incredibly detailed, really well researched. And I knew I could do that because I knew, well, I am six, you know, it's the six degrees rule. I'm six degrees from everybody I could possibly want to talk to. There's literally nobody that I might want to talk to that I can't even, that I couldn't try to get in touch with if I wanted to. And does that come from your history as, yeah. a, as a dance music journalist or, oh, yeah. your, or your history as a, a fan of the music? Well, it's both. It's, I mean, again, it's the separation of church and state thing. So it wasn't like I had personal relationships with all of these people. I had professional ones. I knew all their publicists. That's how I knew. That was my six degrees. It was, it was if I want to talk to just about anybody, I know how I can reach them or I know through whom I can reach them. It wasn't because I knew any of them personally. But I did know that I was going to talk to a lot of people I did know personally. And in some cases, I talked to people that I'd probably in some ways or other butted heads with over the years, in, you know, maybe privately, maybe publicly. And they were, people were really generous. I mean, I talked to a lot of people, but I could have talked to twice that many people because I definitely reached out to twice that many people. I didn't hear back from as many or more people than I heard back from. You know, and some publicists were over and above, and some were less, and that's the way the ball bounces. I also knew, well, if, you know, if person A doesn't talk to me, person B might. If person B doesn't, person C will. There is going to be somebody there. There's going to be somebody I can talk to. Jeff Mills turned me down flat, for example. I didn't actually try to talk to Mad Mike. And the reason I didn't try to talk to Mad Mike is because I didn't, well, first of all, I didn't think he'd talk to me. Maybe I'm wrong. But I also knew I wasn't writing about an event that he was part of, and that was a big, big part of it. Because once I, it took a long time to figure out what I was going to write about, like what the structure of the thing was. I was going to ask about that. The book focuses on dance music in the United States. There are obviously a lot of players who are not from the United States, but all of the action in the book is happening here. Right. Uh, Was that always the plan? Oh, from the beginning. Sitting on that bus, talking to all these people. Yeah. Part of that revelatory moment was, this is your book, meaning America is your book. No one had told that story. There's one book that's specifically about the United States, or really about North America, and it's called Rave America, and it's by Mariel Silkoff, who's a, I believe, Montreal columnist who published the book under a different name, Silkot, with T's instead of F's. And it's a decent book. It's worth picking up if you ever see it, but it's also not, you know, it was published in 1999, and it's 
anecdotal in a way my book isn't necessarily. That's not a, I don't mean to denigrate it at all. It's just a very, it was like, this is an incomplete picture. It's a snapshot of the time and it's valuable for that. But at the same time, I knew what I wanted to do was a lot deeper and a lot more involved, even more than what Simon was doing. I also knew it was a narrative. I also knew I, what I wanted to write was a book like the type I like to read, which are big narrative books about culture. So it was like, well, I know all these stories. I know there's got to be 50,000 more stories than I know. I knew about Grave because I wrote about Grave in 2002 for City Pages. A lot of the quotes from that chapter are from that piece. You know, I talked to Tommy Sunshine for that piece. I talked to about half the people that are quoted in the actual, in, in the part of the chapter that is about the party, per se, as opposed to the rest of the chapter, which is about all this other ferment that's going on around it. So I had... I started to try to figure out how to write something like this, and it took a long time. I I talked myself out of it dozens of times. It's a daunting task, and I also thought, I really did think, oh, well, someone else is going to do this. When Phil Sherburn's cover story and spin on Skrillex on that whole thing came out, I thought, well, he's probably going to get a book contract. He's Philip Sherburn. (laughs) And... Then I kept thinking, oh, well, maybe somebody else is going to do it. Maybe I kept also thinking, this isn't really blowing up, you know? Yeah. Because I was pretty removed from the action. I hadn't been going to, I didn't go to those festivals. At that point, remember, I was also writing for RA. I was like a staff writer. I was writing a dozen record reviews a month. I know the process well. Oh, my God. It's grueling. (laughs) It's very difficult. It's very difficult. I think I got nominated as the worst writer on RA by about 50 different readers over the years. (laughs) And it's like, well, yeah, if this review is all you read, probably. (laughs) You try it. You come up with something different and interesting to say about all these faceless dance records. (laughs) And also, I'm old. I don't go out as much. You know, I just turned 40, and even four years ago, I was old. I mean, I felt old. I was, you know, I had back problems. That really did not help me in my pursuit of nightlife. And I had also just, I don't go out that often. I've always approached dance music as a listener, and I've always approached it as somebody who hears it as a kind of pop music, even though it's really not a kind of pop music. You do mention in the or you sort of allude in the introduction to the book, though, that you do have experience as a raver or oh, yeah. as someone who was going out quite a lot. And, and that mm-hmm. was something I wondered was where you come at it from, from that angle, what your history is with this music. My first rave was in March of 93 in Minneapolis at the Heart of the Beast Puppet Theater. And the DJs were Acid Bath and DJ Cat in the Hat, one of... Because in 1993, every city in America had a DJ cat in the hat. And I remember it vividly. I'd been reading about it. I'd been listening to the music for years at that point. Uh, Two years prior to that, I had had found a used copy of the History of the House Sound of Chicago 12-LP box set. It was missing a disc. That's why it was only 50 bucks. Snapped that up. I had been listening to Pop House on the radio. I loved Black Box. I really loved D-Light. I loved all that stuff. And I wanted, and I was like, where's the rest? Where's more of this, you know? I liked Moby. I liked the early Prodigy stuff. But I was listening to it. It's funny to think about now. I 
in my own weird sort of suburban outside the loop way, I was a purist because I only listened to comps. I didn't trust albums by dance artists because most of them sucked. Most of them were just singles collections. It took me a long time to start listening to dance albums because I was like, in, in the way that a DJ would say, I only listen to 12 inches, I would only listen to comps because I, and most of the comps sucked. But I was like, I want to hear this music uncut. I want to hear DJs play it too, but I also want to hear it the way that it was meant to be heard, which is one track at a, you know, I want to hear the tracks. I don't want to, I like, I don't care about somebody's star persona or whatever, which was only true up to a point because I really loved Moby in the early 90s. Loved him. And I can hear people hitting stop right there all over the world. <laughs> Within the context of the book, he, he's definitely one of the most controversial characters in the whole thing. Yes. And, and he does not do himself so many favors. At all, no. He gave me 90 minutes, which I think is more than he's ever given any journalist ever. So hats off. And I also talked to him for another 90 about something else and used some of those quotes. So I ended up on the record with him for quite a bit, which was extremely generous of him. And he is, by all accounts, a very nice guy, and he's certainly been nice in my encounters with him, although they haven't been personal in any way. But I wanted that to happen, because I remember I, I was talking to somebody in New York, somebody who's pretty involved in the music, and she was like, why are you writing about Moby? And it was like, because he was the biggest thing in this music for years. And people don't understand that. People think he's this old guy who makes down-tempo blase music you know they they know him post play they don't know like in the early 90s if you put moby on the bill your party sold out period he was hugely popular hugely popular like he was the biggest thing the scene had in america in the early 90s well he was sort of the first star very of, much of the scene very much he was the first star from the scene to translate outside of the scene and for a lot of dance people, that's in itself a sin because cater to the base or nothing, right? And I understand that attitude, but pretending like that in itself is the end of the discussion is silly. So I also thought it was interesting to, I wanted to put a lot of people in their place. I wanted to, to you know, everybody's on the chessboard and you have to know where they go. The revelation for me was Steve Aoki. I had no idea until I started writing this book how important Steve Aoki was. Genuinely important. Do I love his music? No. But but is he important? He's hugely important and in, and in ways that are not evident anywhere. No one knows this stuff except the people who were involved at the time. And that holds true for so many other things in the book. I think I've placed... Richie Houghton very well as well, even though I didn't really get to talk to him. It's not like there's any shortage of Richie Houghton quotes out there, though, and it certainly isn't as though there's any shortage of people who went to those parties. Mm -hmm. I feel like now you have a lot of younger fans who they know him as the guy who plays the festivals, and they should. That's what he does. And he's definitely gone out and made himself into a crossover icon of some sort and also a very conscious link from that period to now but that period is not well understood and his role in that period i think is only well understood by the people who 
were involved. Mm. So it, I thought I felt it was important. I knew that there were going to be a handful of people that threaded throughout the book right at the beginning, and they all, except for Houghton, all of them were really generous with their time. So where was sort of the beginning after you had the concept for the book, uh, after you had gone through the the things that you have to do when you're going to write a book, making a proposal, all of that. I mean, what was the first wrote, interview? Well, I wrote uh, Richie Houghton. <laughs> Literally, it was Richie Houghton because I went back home, fired up that dance music was going to blow up, pitching editors about it and getting no response. And then Mike Pravat, who was at that point an editor at Las Vegas City Life, asked me to interview him for the EDC the other thing is I didn't get started on the book right away because I was a little daunted by it and also because I was using a really bad loner computer from my mom, which was like 12 years old, and I would literally turn the computer on and leave the room for 20 minutes while all the spam booted up so that I could swat it all down and actually get to work. It was awful. The sexy life of the music journalist, right? I was so broke I couldn't afford a new computer for six months. I had to wait until I had mo enough money to buy a new laptop so I could actually start doing interviews because I was literally doing interviews where I was putting my cell phone on speaker and recording it on a separate digital It was a mess. It just sounded like a bunch of mosquitoes. And I couldn't, I, it was a very bad time financially for me. It was a rough time all around. I broke up with my girlfriend of five years at that point, too. It was just a rotten time. And so I had to wait until I had the money to get the computer, and then I got the com I remember, God, I got that computer home, and I turned it on, and it worked. I turned, like, I started crying because, I, oh, my God, after six months, I have a laptop that works. Terrible. So... Richie was the first. Richie and I spoke with him for 20 minutes while he was in an airport in Berlin for a Q&A to run in the, in the Las Vegas City Life ahead of his appearance at Electric Daisy Carnival. So those are the first-hand quotes of him in the book. that I are They're from that interview. So technically, yeah, he was the first person I talked to, and then I didn't get to talk to him again. But what happened really after that was I started writing pieces. I started okay, how am I going to sell the book? I need a sample chapter. How about I start doing... So the first thing I wrote with this book in mind outside of talking to him was a feature for NPR uh, about the simultaneous rise of the internet and rave culture. And I followed that with a piece on the electronica boom in the States. And I did those for very little money considering the work, but I also did them because I needed them to back up what I wanted to do. It was basically, I was world building in a sense. And I started doing those kinds of pieces. I just started thinking, what are the pieces I want to write? I know I have to cover this. I know I have to cover that. Peter Orlov was in charge of the art. When RBMA came to New York in 2012, he was in charge of the print magazine. And Todd had already left RA and gone to RBMA by that point. So I wrote a New York techno thing for RBMA, fall of 11, maybe? And then in 12, Peter Orlov says, let's get coffee. And he says, I want you to write a New York house history. And he's like, the book's going to be great. You need a New York house chapter. And I ended up cutting the New York house chapter, unfortunately. I ended up concatenating it into the Stormwave chapter. But I was 
having coffee with him and he said, yeah, you're going to sell this book. Just put EDM in the title. <laughs> and at that point, I hadn't even considered putting EDM in the title because the book was going to end with the rave act originally. It was just going to be about the 90s. Mm. I was just going to be like the rise and fall and maybe a little coda. And I had no idea what had been going on because I was in RA land. I wasn't in, I was in hipster land in that sense. I wasn't paying a bit of attention. I, I remember talking to a friend who writes for Pitchfork who we were laughing at the idea that anybody in their right mind would ever write about bass nectar. <laughs> like bass nectar, ha ha ha. And here I am writing about bass nectar in my book and not about the stuff I was actually listening to and doting on, you know? There's no, there's no David Kennedy in my book. There's no Pearson sound. There's no, you name it. And to me, 06 to 10 is a huge purple patch. One of the great periods of dance music. I'll put that with the first half of the 90s. It's not as important historically. It's just shitloads of great music. But almost none of that made it in because the story I had to tell wasn't about that. The book really runs against my tastes in many ways. But I'm not sorry about it because this story needed to be told. Was there like an aha moment or something where you where you realized that, okay, I'm going to have to write about the bass nectars of the world? Yeah, when Peter said, just put EDM in the title. As soon as he said that, it all clicked in place. It was like, oh shit, the book has to be up to the present. The book has to go up to the present day. It's not just going to be about the 90s. Because I had thought, oh, I'm going to write a 90s book, so it's basically going to be like a map of the... I wanted to go deep into all of the regional scenes that I wasn't able to in the book. And I'm writing a series now for... I wouldn't call... Well, it's a series in my head, but I'm doing a bunch of nightclubbing things for Todd at RBMA. I just did a couple... I did one on House Nation in... Minneapolis, which is my alma mater, First Avenue, 7th Street entry. I worked there in the late 90s. And then I just did one on your sister's house in San Francisco. And that one, I knew there wasn't room. There's just no room in the book for a thing like that because it's minor, really. Uh, it isn't minor because it's women. I, don't, I really don't want it to sound like that. It's minor because 350 people went at the most. You know, It was minor because it was a tiny part of a huge scene. But it was a great story. And I knew it was a great story, and I did all my interviewing for that piece at the time. And I've got a couple more that I'm not going to talk about until they're ready, but that I think it, actually at least one of them will probably be up by the time this runs, so I'll mention it. I'm writing an oral history of Motor Detroit. That's all based on book interviews. That's all like, you know, you work on a big project and it opens up doors to a lot of other projects. But I knew there was just no space for this stuff. And... I underestimated how much room there'd be for the stuff I actually really wanted in the book, too. I had so many other ideas. I was going to do, you know, I was going to do a chapter on the compact versus reflex party. Exaggerating to make a point, maybe the only good U.S. party between the Rave Act and the 2010s, pretty much. It was the only party I remember from that whole mid-2000s period where I was like, oh, this is great. This is what I want, you know? Not on drugs either, just like totally sober, like, yeah. And I raved sober most of the time. I will emphasize that. This, mm. It was always about the music for me. Mm -hmm. The music grabbed me as music. It didn't grab me as an, an excuse to take drugs. One point that I think is incredibly interesting in the book is that... At the same time, the rave movement 
was happening. At the same time raves were developing, the internet was also sort of in its early stages. And, and there's so many great quotes that you pull out of the book that are kind of based... From the mailing list? Yeah, yeah. They're great quotes that are kind of pulled out of out of the mailing list and stuff like that. Uh, were you involved in, in any of these mailing lists? How, how did you work this into no, your story? No, I wasn't. I was not. I was not on the mailing lists. I was a poor dude with no computer. I actually had a computer for a few months in 1994, and then I had my apartment robbed. I got an inheritance from my great-great-aunt, went out and bought a Mac, and within six months, my apartment got robbed, and it was gone. And that was my time on the internet in the mid-'90s. And also in 1996, I briefly lived in Seattle, and I went to an internet cafe there. It was the first internet cafe I had ever seen, and it was one of the first internet cafes in the country, most likely. You mentioned something about an internet cafe in the book where... There's a it, few. It costs something like 9 or $10 an hour an to hour. connect to the internet, which seems incredibly expensive by today's standards. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's so funny now. The, the reason I was able to go to that internet cafe is because they had a credit system. Thinking back on it, it's like such tech naivete, you know? Such early internet naivete. Not in the sense of people posting things naively, but people believing naively that this is going to bring about a better tomorrow. Because at that point, who thought it was a lot of myopia? I, I, I say that with a lot of fondness, but it was myopic. It was a lot of tech people. It was a lot of geeks and wonks and nerds and, and people who were utopian, but also blinkered and sheltered in certain ways, societally at least. But in 1996, going to the Internet Cafe, I would read, yeah, I think I subscribed briefly to the Moby mailing list. I was, it was 1996. I had a Hotmail account of some sort or other, and I subscribed to a mailing list or two, but I didn't really participate. The way I did it for the book, God, I've been waiting to talk about this. This is like such nerdery ahead. <laughs> Here's what I did. I knew that the mailing lists existed. I knew that that resource existed. What I ended up doing was going to Hyperial, and I thought, oh, they've got all these mailing lists, about 20 of them. So I opened all the tabs, and only six or seven of them actually had archives available, which, thank God, because I'd, I still wouldn't be finished with the research, much less the book, if that hadn't been the case. And what I ended up doing was... It's all available as zip files of, they're all in text format. And what I did is I, I downloaded all the text formatted archives and I converted them to PDF. I put them on my iPad and I did word searches. So I'd go through it month by month and just look up and I had a long list of like, I knew what the chapters were by this time. And these are the terms I need this is the era I need these terms, and I just went to town. And that's what I did on the subway. I didn't do this at home, although I did do it at home a lot. And sometimes it would be like, I don't feel like sitting in front of a laptop. I'm just going to do this, and it's work. And it was work. But what I ended up with, and stupidly, I didn't save all the text files. I wish I had. I don't know why. I think I thought I had saved them somewhere, and I ended up, and I didn't. And I could do that all again, but it'll take hours, and it's not worth my time. But what I ended up with is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of copied and pasted mailing list posts that pertained in some way or other to what I was writing about, and in many cases didn't at all. But that was the raw data. And 
that got thrown in with everything else along with and for example the san francisco chapter chapter four that one doesn't exist without the mailing lists. The whole opening is taken from the mailing lists. The whole account of the two parties on the same night is taken from SF Raves, every detail, except for two or three things that I found elsewhere or asked someone about. Initially, I thought, I asked Thomas Bullock if he had been the one who ended the gathering finale with We Are Family. He said, I never played We Are Family. That had to be Garth. So got my fact checking done <laughs> but yeah like that boy i mean and i have all of that stuff still and i use it all i'm utilizing it all it's i made myself a nice database yeah, it's an incredible resource yes absolutely incredible resource yes absolutely and i mean it's nice to have it just as backup on stuff i used some of that in the your sister's house piece for example like bolsters the research really helpful and great great sometimes great fun to read sometimes incredibly painful to read you know i ended up reading more about stupid internecine crap than anybody has time for <laughs> well that's that's an interesting thing that's a little bit of a parallel between the beginning of the sort of rave era and now you know this quote-unquote more mature era i mean it's it's almost unthinkable to separate going to rave seeing djs with talking about them on the internet afterward right but that was always and that was always the case absolutely i knew that was an ace in the hole i thought no one else has done this literally no one no one has gone through all this stuff and and ferreted out the details and it's worth also clarifying that the early rave era is the U early U.S. rave era, which is a very different time period, I think, for a lot of people than the, you know, the early rave era in England and Germany and, and all of these places are very, very, like, three, four, five years earlier than it was in the States. A lot of scenes were really only starting up in America by 93, you know. In the book, David Guetta says that Paris was super late because it was 1990. It's like... It didn't exist outside of L.A. or New York in 1990 in America, not as raves. Like, Detroit didn't have raves until around then, you know? They didn't. You can't really count the Music Institute as a rave. You can't count a lot of that stuff as a rave. And even though Richie Houghton, I'm sure, will swear to his dying day that all his parties were not raves, yeah, they fucking were. <laughs> yeah, well, you kind of use the Music Institute mm -hmm. in the book as... In a lot of ways, that seems like the starting point for all of this. It was so different from the candy raver thing and uh, events with 5,000 people, 10,000 people, Knott's Berry Farm, like whatever. And yet in the book, uh, I think you explicitly make the point at one point that, that, that this little dark room in Detroit was the beginning of the whole thing. Yeah, at the end of the chapter. I do. And that's very deliberate. The first two chapters were supposed to be a 5,000-word intro. Mm-hmm. And I ended up with this like 30,000 word draft, this monstrosity that I finally was like, wow, I cut this way down to 16,000 words. I thought, okay, I'll try to make this a 10,000 word opening. It was impossible. It was impossible because, you, I, because once I started writing it, I realized no one knows any of this stuff. You actually have to explain what house music is. You can't just go in explain, expecting anybody to, ex expecting anybody coming in cold to understand what house music was and how it was different from disco and how it was different from anything or techno 
you have to explain every damn thing. When I wrote the proposal, the proposal is 38,000 words. Like I wrote uh, 37,000 words. I wrote a 37,000 word proposal to sell the book because I knew no one was going to understand any of it. Originally, it was a 25 chapter book, and I literally go into detail in every single ch about every chapter. I outlined the book very, t very closely. And if all I had done was flesh out that proposal, the book would the book wouldn't be accurate. Mm. I got a lot of things wrong in that proposal. It's one reason I've n I don't show the proposal to people because I made mistakes left and right. Because at that point, I'd only done some research. There's this incredible chapter in the book that I was really struck by about Grave. This seems like the moment when if it had all been sort of sunshine and togetherness and unity, all of a sudden there was just this little inkling that this could turn dark. Right. The whole thing about the Midwest scene, is it was very consciously dark. It was very... The whole thing about Drop Base Network is that they sold themselves as Satanists. The whole <laughs> point of those parties was we're badass Satanists. And we're going to rock your world with our techno music or whatever. Yeah, you also, just to, to kind of go off, isn't it that there are some people from Drop Bass come to... They go that, to the Storm Rave. They go to the Storm Rave in the Staten final. Island, which just sounds like the most heinous party to have ever existed. It's in a barn. There are people moshing. And, and everybody, like... Thinks that this is amazing. Who comes from the Midwest? It's five degrees below zero. Yeah. One person thinks it's amazing, and that's Kurt X, who runs Drop Bass. Tommy Sunshine thinks it's hell because he's on fifty different drugs, <laughs> and he's in the porta potty where everything is echoing, and he's climbing the fence. The whole Midwest scene was about they really played the crazed farm boy aspect of it. They like they shoved it in your face. I loved that. Mm -hmm. That was my. That was so great for me, you know? I wasn't a farm boy at all. I actually almost punched somebody who called me that once. <laughs> like, no, Minneapolis is a city. I, I'm from a city, no. You know, and, and I had never spent any time outside of Minneapolis when I lived in Minneapolis. I didn't go, it wasn't like I went to Hibbing. It's not like I hung out in like the smaller towns. Uh, no thanks. Uh, I'm a city dude, always. This is a terrible analogy in a way because what I'm comparing it to isn't something I like, but it's almost like something like Nashville Pussy or something, like a band where it's like, yeah, we're rednecks in your face or whatever. And that together with dance culture, that's kind of irresistible. That's like, I'm from the Midwest and these guys are doing it in barns and they're doing it and they're pretending to be Satan worshipers? This is awesome. But they were not, in, in fact, they were very much not part of Grave. Um, no. The guys came to the party basically right. just so they could say they had nothing to do with it. This party sounded like it was meant to be relatively happy, yeah. relatively tame, That's, obviously a lot of It's a of turning drugs. point, yeah. The crazy thing about it, the police bust it over something like... 10 beers and a couple of weed pipes and and they were expecting they were basically going to find alcohol right but they seemed to have no idea they didn't what, know what ecstasy was they didn't know what ecstasy was and they really didn't know what was going on in in any way shape or form they just knew that they didn't like it well they'd seen other parties like it they'd been keeping an eye on all the drop bass stuff that was going on and thought this was a drop bass party so they were going there to bust drop bass and drop bass were just there as observers as dancers so you end up with this party that ends up getting nearly a thousand people arrested and fined. Almost all the charges got dropped because they there was no evidence. They thought, 
oh, we they all the tickets that they had made were for drinking. And meanwhile, there's $10,000 worth of ecstasy stuffed into the cracks of the walls, and the police have no idea what they are. That's right. The party promoters go back to the place a few days later and dig through a lot of straw on the ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and they, they pull out just an insane amount of all of the ecstasy pills that people had dropped all, all over the, the place. All the dealers had to drop their stuff. Like, the police show up, everybody swallow or stash. So they stash a lot of them. And there's straw all over the ground because it's a Halloween party and they've made up a haunted house facade. So totally easy to do. Yeah, I mean, I always thought this is the greatest rock and roll story I've ever heard. That was always, to me, like, the most incredible story. And I couldn't believe no one else would was writing about it. You see accounts of it here and there in other books, but nobody... And, I, and a lot of those quotes are from a piece I wrote for City Pages in Minneapolis in 2002 on the 10th anniversary of it. And this is in the middle of the Rave Act, too. So I got to do that piece, and I talked to a lot of the people for that piece. And I use a lot of those quotes. I talked to those people again, of course, a lot of them. And I talked to one person. I feel terrible that I didn't—I just— sent the proofs back and I forgot to include him in the thanks. I forgot to include him in the interviewees, but Robin Bott was one of the people who put that on. And he wrote me a very long, couple of long emails about it. And I used very little of it just because I had so much other stuff and also because some of it was not verifiable and some of it was, and some of it was very much beside the point, you know how it is. But I feel bad that I didn't get more of him in there. Just there wasn't room. I had more of him in there, and then I had to cut it just because I had it. Some of it duplicated what I had. You can't use everything, unfortunately. Well, something that that I was kind of trying to do as I was reading the book is figure out what made this type of music, this type of scene, such a hard sell to the mainstream. Part of it, I think, was the these sort of law enforcement issues, this intense skepticism by the authorities of the scene. But that's not necessarily something that they didn't have in Europe. No, I, this is the music business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The music business didn't want it. Yeah, well, and, and that was part of it. I mean, something else that came to mind was, you know, hip hop had a bigger impact here in the States than it did elsewhere. Understandably. And a lot of the crowd sort of initially got kind of sucked up into hip-hop and also a lot of the um well the black crowd for in the chicago, early days right. yeah in chicago definitely detroit less so it would seem mm -hmm. elsewhere it just didn't translate the disco sucks backlash it did a lot of damage there's a great deal of homophobia in america and that's a big part of it because dance music equaled gay i think it's very telling that you have like peter wahelski talking about having radio people say we don't play gay stuff about the chemical brothers which is about the least gay dance music sounding you know in the high energy sense music you can think of there's nothing about the chemical brothers of all acts right of all the groups you could think of that that you could probably try to sell to a radio station that you'd be like, oh, I don't know, this sounds a little too, you know, gay-identified to me. They have more to do probably with psychedelic rock than Absolutely. with a lot of what's going on in the rave scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was sort of the other thing that I, that I kind of initially settled on was you, you really get the sense that a big issue for a long time was that 
the big record companies didn't know how to market this stuff. And they ended up with groups that didn't have much to do with anything else that was going on in the scene. They were, they were, there wasn't much going on behind them that Rem could come up and, and, and join them. Remember Hard Knocks? No. There you go. <laughs> that was one of the groups that, you know, a major label subsidiary signed up in the wake of the Chemical Brothers and the Prodigies, a U.S. success. There was this whole passel of Rocktronica that happened in the late 90s, and all of it is garbage, just about. Just about all of it. You know, they were trying to sell drum and bass for a while. They were trying to, you know, they were throwing it at the wall to see what stuck because they couldn't figure out what was good about it. They couldn't figure out why people liked it. And those things are sort of understandable. You have alternative rock blowing up. They're familiar with that. They know that. They can sell that. That's not hard. They have hip-hop coming up. That sells itself. That You know, the, the industry resisted hip-hop throughout the 80s. And then by 1990, 91, they can't resist it anymore. They can't, they can't push it back. By 91, hip-hop is about to take over. Dr. Dre and The Chronic happened in late 92, and that's it. It's not, it's not even a contest after that. After that, it's just that's hip-hop becomes pop music in America. And by 97, that's, it's a wrap. And there were all of these totally misguided ideas about electronic music doing what it had done in England. About it, okay, we're going to make this the new youth culture. Well, on the one hand... The idea that you would make that the new youth culture made sense in the way that it took hip-hop and it took punk rock or alternative rock so long to reach the mainstream that I'm sure, for example, white labels, the Rick Rubin label, I'm sure he was thinking, well, this stuff, this other stuff hasn't reached the mainstream, maybe this will. I feel like that was some of the thinking behind it. And... A lot of people didn't like what hip hop had become by the late, by the mid '90s. It had become a lot of crappy gangsta rap. I mean, it wasn't all there was by any means, but that was the stuff that sold. That was the easiest stuff to sell. And you had this whole mindset of that only works if you're on drugs. That music isn't listenable unless you're on drugs. You know, it's it's the Grateful Dead joke. You know, what did the what did the Deadhead say when the when the drugs wore off? This music sucks. So. You have this whole, like, well, this, this is just going to be a cult, and we're going to make it a cult. One quote that I didn't use was James Lum from Electric Sky Church. He was talking to some boomer. I think it was actually Ron Howard, his boss. And them saying, well, your generation is a lot smaller than ours, so we don't care what you like. We're just going to keep doing what we like. And I really do feel that culturally that was the case in America for a very long time. That baby boom generation and the gen really kind of just swamped everything under it for a long time. The reason, you know, when Nirvana blew up, people were shocked. I was shocked in the same way, very much the same way that people were shocked when EDC 11 happened and all of a sudden it was obvious that this was big. They, like, we didn't, we didn't ratify this. What's going on? And when the Chemical Brothers and the Prodigy blew up, the same thing happened. There was this gold rush. We got to open our own dance subsidiary. They would hire people who knew their stuff, and, then, and they would give them resources, but they didn't know what to do beyond that. And the people who knew their stuff weren't necessarily savvy biz people. Mm. That's a big part of it, too. Somebody like DB, who has great ears, amazingly, like, 
Best of Techno Volume 3 on Profile 1993, one of the greatest albums of the 90s. No joke. Great album. And yes, it includes Sesame's Treat, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, you want a killer snapshot of the period, man, that's it. It's like half trance when it's super 303 heavy and not stupid. And, you know, UK hardcore on the cusp of jungle. So it's just beautiful. Great, great music. And of course, I'm on record as like a total fucking stan for like 92 to 95 jungle and, you know, hardcore into jungle that's one of my favorite eras yeah sure but yeah like the you know they thought oh it's a bunch of novelty hits or it's a bunch of kids on drugs or you know where's the chorus why why isn't this a song and it what's funny to, you know and it's funny to me it took a long time for my generation of listeners who grew up with that and understood that as a facet of pop music if not actually pop music to hear it as something other than an anomaly you know and the daft punk breakthrough is is where that finally happens mm. where it finally becomes oh daft punk is part of the firmament the way that the sex pistols became part of the firmament not that the daft punk are like the sex pistols but because American kids now would be like, oh, the Sex Pistols, they're legends. They weren't legends in America when they were out. America broke the Sex Pistols in half. They killed the Sex Pistols. They came to America and they got spat on for real. It wasn't fun. They were like, they didn't, set, they didn't break through. The album tanked as far as the biz was concerned, but they kept it in print and it kept selling forever. And the same thing happened with Daft Punk. And after a while, you stay in the game, you stay that level of you didn't sell 10,000 a week you just sold 3,000 a week but you did it for 20 years it adds up yeah so what would you say then like are the fundamental differences between the period we're in now and the, the electronica boom no one is under the impression that anybody is going to sell albums I think we saw that with Skrillex last year that album didn't do shit I mean, yeah, it, I, had to, I had to change the phrasing of my mentioning of Recess in the book because the copy editor said, well, it debuted in the top five. It did debut in the top five, not that that's remotely meaningful anymore because, you know, you can, re you can practically release a cassette now and it can debut in the top five because the bar, is, the bar has hit the ground in terms of sales figures. But also... His fans don't care that he's, that he's got an album. You know, dance music fans have never cared about albums, per se, as a group of fans, I should say. You know, en masse, albums aren't the point. You know, they were never the point. You didn't hear, like, Brandon Ivers, a friend of mine who was a drum and bass DJ, and he, good writer, wrote for Accelerator for a long time. If you got into a raver's car, you didn't hear albums, you heard mixtapes. And that's, that's how people consume the music. They go hear it, they go hear DJs play it. Or they hear DJs play it on their car stereo or on their headphones. And that's so obvious now because of podcasting. Podcasting didn't, ch I wouldn't even say that it changed anybody's listening habits. I think what it changed is people's understanding of dance fans' listening habits. I think it pushed it out to the surface that this is how we've always consumed this music. I mean... I'm I'm using we very generously because I I confess I was never a big mixtapes guy in the 90s and I've done a lot of catching up in the time since. You know, one of the things that I got to do while I wrote this book is I downloaded t 
tons of mixes, and I listen to them in chronological order. Chronological order. Starting with Tom Moulton, 1974. Yeah. That's chronological. Yeah. I listened, and I've, not all of them, by any means. I had to skip a lot, and I've missed a lot. But yeah, I listened to probably 2,000 or so mixes in order. Well, since you get in the book is that live performance was always a big thing for the record labels. Um, They they wanted acts that could do a live show in one way or another. Daft Punk being kind of the, the first example of doing it the way that maybe we recognize it being done That's now, right. at least on a, on a large scale. The, the big difference now is, yeah, nobody seems deluded into the idea that, you know, a big EDM artist is going to put out a big album in the way that, you know, people at Astral Works back in the, in the mid-90s were saying Chemical Brothers might debut in the top 10. Right. I think what has also happened is that the music business understands now that a career in dance music is not a career in rock. You don't use the same parameters. It's hit and runs. If you're a DJ, you hit and run, right? A tour is a very special thing sometimes, but you don't... A rock band can't just say, I'm going to appear in Zurich tomorrow, and then I'm going to fly to LA, and then I'm going to fly to Detroit, and then I'm going to drive to Chicago, and then I'm going to fly back to Zurich, and then I'm going to go to Germany. You can't do that if you're a rock band. It's not possible. The The rock tour apparatus introduced itself because a rock band is a giant fucking unit of people there's a lot of moving parts with a dj very different even if you're playing only vinyl it's just one person with some stuff so that's very different from the way that the record business is used to dealing with things or was i should say used to dealing with things and there's also i think the idea that the yeah i mean the way a a career is conducted is just so different now overall and you know you parcel out an album or a single or an ep or whatever like it's all fodder for your mix that's how dance music people have mostly approached this there was an old quote i found great old quote i ended up cutting it from the book i was going through billboard and i found this 1994 article about the riaa was doing these mixtape crackdowns in, L- in New York and D.C. Not L.A., New York, D.C. And there are quotes from all these managers talking about all the hip-hop... So it's like there's two or three different p- pieces as part of a package. All the hip-hop execs are like, yeah, we're for them. As long as they don't include the whole album or half the album, you know, if they don't include too much of the record in advance, that's a, it's great promotion. Whereas the dance music people, are all, they're all kind of coming out of the house tradition, a lot of them where it's songs and you know it's it's the old school art it's like an old school R&B idea of what house music is and they're like i don't understand why blah, blah, this takes away from our bottom line people aren't buying the records and there's this quote from Marcy Weber Moby's manager talking about i don't know talking about how the DJs excerpting the songs is in some way anathema to the way that her artists you know create it's like my artists put together music to be experienced in and of itself and i think in moby's case that was very true because he was writing songs he was like his gift was to write to take the materials of dance music and turn it into pop songs which is why the dance people hated him (laughs) they didn't want pop songs 
but it's really funny to read. I, I sent that to her. I was like, remember saying this? You got anything to say? She's like, yeah, yeah, different times. And it's like, it's just so the opposite of the way actually, that actually the way DJ culture works. No, taking excerpts from the songs is the entire point. The entire point. It's not beside the point. It's not a corruption. That's why they make the records. You finish up the book with uh, sort of telling the story of Daft Punk coming back. Right. Random access memories. This would have been something that happened well into the process of, of writing the book. When, when did you decide, like, this is the conclusion? The day after the Grammys. Actually, specifically, I realized that the last chapter would be the last chapter when I saw Tommy Sunshine's Tumblr page, when I saw his random access memories after party invitation that he'd photographed and put, like, he'd scanned it and put it on his Tumblr page. And he had photos from the party as well. And I was like, oh, that's where you're going to end the book. That's where you can end the book. Because I was really struggling up until that point. I didn't know how I was going to end the book. I knew I wasn't going to end it in Vegas. I thought about it. I actually had the idea originally, but I thought I would try to get onto Holy Ship and end it there. Mm. I thought I was going to, I was like, let me see if I can possibly get an assignment and, you know, maybe, maybe I can get somebody big to send me to Holy Ship and pay my way there so I can do this because I couldn't afford it. And thank God, because I think if I'd gone on Holy Ship, I would be a wrecked man. <laughs> I'm too old for it. I'm not, like, maybe I wouldn't be. Maybe I'd have had a good time. But going to festivals, going to EDM festivals, not always my favorite thing to do, although it's fascinating. The ones I went to for the book in the main were really interesting, sociologically. I, I also thought about writing about the Identity Festival because I did a big review, a long review for the Village Voice of that, where it was just like, it was the first EDM festival I'd been to per se. And I was just like, my head exploded. It was, it, I showed the piece to Simon Reynolds. He's like, it sounds like you had a really amazing bad time. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly what I had. I was like, the music was mostly awful. The crowd was like, I, it was, it was stupendous in a way. It was like, wow, it's like 20,000 14 year olds all on drugs for the first time. Well, this is the, the feature of so many pieces that you read about EDM right. and about EDM festivals is it that's a great way of putting it it does sound like the journalist is having a really great awful time right yeah because there's so much to talk about there's so much going on it's like in a way you could say oh this is hell this is a corruption of the thing i love but i didn't experience it that way i experienced it strictly speaking i did in a dictionary definition sense i did but i also knew that these kids were having the time of their lives and i was really pleased to see that in a way it was like, I really wish you weren't all, I wish you, all you 15 year old girls didn't have slut written on you. Like that. <laughs> and and you're queasy. talking lit literally, literally slut written on them in hot yeah. pink liquid gel on one girl's neck and hats and t-shirts and yeah, all that stuff, bitch, slut, all these slurs that can be, you know, I'm pretty free with language and I like I have no problem swearing and I have no problem with other people swearing and I'm not a prude. And, and I also know that 15 year olds can be pretty sophisticated, but I didn't see a lot of irony there and I didn't see a lot of, uh, I didn't pick up on a lot of winking. Mm. That, that seemed pretty straightforward to me. Like in a way it was like, oh, ha ha ha, I'm saying I'm this, but I'm really not. It's just a sign. It's just like, 
I got that. But it says something bad about society when that's the joke. I mean, your treatment in the book of random access memories is, I would say, a bit harsh. It's a bit harsh. Um, oh, yeah, because I, 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 I hate the album. You don't like the album. No. That, that much was very clear. They haven't made a good record since Discovery, aside from Get Lucky. And sort the of... live album. The live <laughs> album is good. For one thing, I got the sense you, you did not, you certainly, in no uncertain terms, you did not care for the album all that much. The sort of treatment of how the album was uh, perceived, you know, sort of in, in these major label, like Grammy voting circles was definitely nuanced, leaning towards being a bit negative. Oh, it was very negative. And then based on kind of what you're saying about the sort of little bit of nastiness that's accompanying some of the EDM culture, what what you're seeing at the festivals. I mean, are you hopeful about where all of this is headed? I mean, do you sort of still look at this and say these people are having the time of their lives with this music? Well, they're not anymore. I think that moment passed. I think I think we're in 95 now, if you want to put in, you know what I mean? I feel like this, we're playing out the large-scale, very different candy-colored version, the excessively neon version, let us say, <laughs> of that era. Yeah. We're, we're seeing a totally different version of what had already happened 20 years ago, which is really fascinating because, you know, that was another impetus for the book, certainly, was we're, I, I go to this thing and it's like, a lot of the younger audience is having very similar responses to to the music and the culture. And by 95, you saw a lot of burnout. You saw a lot of kids who were just like, there was a lot of casualties. Not, not in a heroic 60s guy kind of a way. I don't mean casualties in any kind of a romantic sense. I mean, I mean, it's bad. And as a culture, I think it's, not fully exhausted. I don't think it's going to exhaust itself permanently. I don't see this going away, no. People will often make this argument like, you know, this music might not be to my taste, right. but there's going to be some sort of, people will hear this and maybe a couple of them will, through Richie Houghton or whatever. Oh, I've just, said that. Yeah, yeah. I've said that many times in print. Do you feel like that's still true? I mean, are we at the point where... We're past that point. Okay. We're, because this isn't... A, we're not in a new big discovery moment anymore. We're not in the we're not in the moment where this is brand new and people are finally discovering this and it's exciting on that level. It's been the mainstream for years now. We're five years into this. So it just can't. It can't have that sense of discovery for anybody. Because even if you're encountering it for the first time, there's baggage attached. Whereas in 2011, I, it, I think it was very possible for somebody to be taken to EDC Vegas and have that be their first experience and literally not know anything about it prior to. Wow, what is this? This is so new. That isn't going to happen now. It's like saying, oh, wow, have you heard this crazy new music called hip hop? Well, yeah, I've lived with it my whole life. So there's... I think that's what's happening now is it's a retrenchment. I feel like the big festivals are going to shrink, but I don't think they're going away, no. I think a lot of dead weight will be kind of thrown out, but I also feel like it's going to turn into something else and I'm not a, and I'm not the person to say what. I really don't know. I am the question interests me as an observer, but I'm not a good prognosticator at all. Are you already thinking about the next book or volume two of this book? I am working on the research for the next book, which is not about dance music. It's about something else entirely. So, I mean, it's about music. 
I'm, I'm loath to say what it is in public yet because I haven't even started writing the proposal, so I really shouldn't blab about it because I don't, you know, not not because, oh, I'm going to surprise everyone. What I'm working on is not going to surprise anyone. Sure. But I'm also, I don't want to jinx it. Yeah. As a journalist who's probably up until this point been used to doing pieces that are 1,500, 2,000, maybe 5,000 words, doing something of this length, 125,000 words, uh, do you like it? Is this what you want to keep doing? Forever. Yeah, this is my metier. This is what I want to do. And, and, and this is what I think I'm good at. I'm better long than I am short. I just am. Like, it's not, I, it, it sounds a little self-congratulatory, and I don't mean it to. I mean, this is where I'm comfortable. Because well, I think anybody who's, who's written a shorter piece would, would tell you that shorter pieces can be as hard to write as the longer pieces. Harder. And also, you know, one big thing, and you see it in certain, of, certain reviews I wrote for RA, for other people, Around 2010, I came to the, I hit a wall essentially because I came to realize there's no way to make a living as a critic. There's no way to make a living record, writing record reviews. It's impossible unless you're somebody like Bob Christgau who's been doing it since 1967. The other thing is in certain of the reviews I would write, the Boo Williams review is a really good example. I was trying to embed all of these ideas into these small reviews and I came to the point where I realized I'm wasting my time doing this, not because I'm too good to write record reviews or anything like that, but because no one is going to read a record review for the ideas anymore. I'm trying to compact a fairly complex series of ideas in some cases, not all, but in a few cases, you know, I'm, I'm trying to present something that has some nuance and some history to it and some historical weight. And that is, it's a fool's game. The audience isn't there for it. It's like, oh, wow, I, I, I can't remember the precise example. But I remember I would, read, I would read features. And this is well beyond dance music. This is just generally. But I would read features. That, I would read a feature somebody wrote, and it would get a lot of attention. And I would be like, I said all of that in a 300-word record review three years ago. <laughs> and it would be like, well, yeah. No one's going to pay attention to that. No one's going to be like, oh, wow, this whole series of interesting ideas. Nobody reads a 300-word record review except me and a few other people for the ideas anymore. So I had to adjust. I had to start writing features, and I like writing features. I was always good at writing features, but I got on this train of I want to just write record reviews because this is a way to talk about all this music I like, and, and I like a lot of music. The reason I like dance music so much was it was a whole new world of all this interesting music that corresponded in some ways to all this other music I liked, all this rock and all this hip hop and all of this, you know, African music and all kinds of stuff. And, and it uses those ideas. Writing those features started, it, it unlocked a door for me. I was like, this is really what I want to be doing. Like the, the feature I wrote for RA about what I then called Perma Retro. And then Simon Reynolds releases his book a few months later, and it's Retromania, which is a much better... I, I still love perma-retro. I still love that term. <laughs> I like the way it looks. I like the way it sounds, but Retromania is a much better term. And he wrote a whole book, so of course. And he has way more ideas about it than I do, as a, and culturally speaking. But I knew when I was writing that, I was like, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be having this dialogue with real people instead of just in my own head on the page. 
and concatenating it, making it tiny, making it fit the making it fit the word count. It was like it's great when you can do that. It's great when you can condense a really complex. I don't want to overrate the complexity of my own ideas, but a fairly complex series of things into a small space and have it be all your voice. But it's really better when you have other voices in it. Mm. Way better because you have something to to work against. <laughs> Just say you must go on and on, close on and on. <laughs> 